Welcome to Short Course, episode 52, for March 8th, 2019. I'm your host, Ben Barry. The truth begins to sink in. Going for mastery in this sport isn't going to bring you the quick rewards you'd hoped for. There's a seemingly endless road ahead of you with numerous setbacks along the way, and, most important, plenty of time on the plateau, where long hours of diligent practice gain you no apparent progress at all. Not a happy situation for one who's highly goal-oriented. You realize that you have a decision to make at some point along the journey, if not now. You're tempted to drop tennis and go out looking for another, easier sport. Or you might try twice as hard, insist on extra lessons, practice day and night. Or you could quit your lessons and take whatever you've learned out on the court. You could forget about improving your game and just have fun with friends who don't play much better than you. Of course, you could also do what your teachers suggest and stay on the long road to mastery. What will you choose? This question, this moment of choice, comes up countless times in each of our lives, not just about tennis or some other sport, but about everything that has to do with learning, with change, with development. Sometimes we choose after careful deliberation, but frequently the choice is careless, a barely conscious one. Seduced by the siren song of a consumerist quick-fix society, we sometimes choose a course of action that brings only the illusion of accomplishment, the shadow of satisfaction. And sometimes, knowing little or nothing about the process that leads to mastery, we don't even realize a choice is being offered. Yet even our failures to choose consciously operate as choices, adding to or subtracting from the amount of our potential that we will eventually realize. So that's from the first chapter of a book called Mastery by George Leonard, which is, it's a book that I like quite a lot. So this episode is going to be a bit of a review and a bit of a recommendation of it because it's always been one of those books that I just always come back to. It's not a book that I feel like I've read it and I'm done. You can pick it up. And in fact, this is how I read it these days is I just pick it up and read a couple of pages until something in there kind of hits me in a way that that hadn't before that I have different context for the last time I read the book. So I, I don't even know how many times I've sort of read it in the sense of finishing and starting over at the beginning, but I'm just always in this process of of going through it, and I really wanted to kind of share some of it with you guys today and and really give you an idea of what's in there, because it's a book. So the the author was an Aikido practitioner. He studied for a while. I think he led a dojo for a while, but certainly for me, having been in this sport for a while and also just, you know, in a professional context, learning and developing at, at my day job, it's everything that he talks about applies straight across. And in fact, I think in some of the ways that the social dynamics of being, for example, based around a dojo and having a certain black belt that you're studying under, it's actually, there's some lessons we can learn that, that we don't really have in, in USPSA because it's a much more individual sport without, you know, dojos and that sort of thing. So for example, one of the things that he talks about from his experience that rings completely true in, in this sport is he talks about a couple of types of people that you see in the sport. People, the, the obsessive types who get in very results oriented, start the sport and then burn out or another, another personality type that, that he's describes, he calls it the hacker. He says the hacker has a different attitude after sort of getting the hang of a thing. He or she is willing to stay on the plateau indefinitely. He doesn't mind skipping stages essential to the development of mastery. If he can just go out and hack around with fellow hackers. He's the physician or teacher who doesn't bother going to professional meetings, the tennis player who develops a solid forehand and figures he can make do with only a ragged backhand. At work, he does only barely enough to get by, leaves on time or early, takes every break, talks instead of doing his job, and wonders why he doesn't get promoted. 
The hacker looks at marriage or living together not as an opportunity for learning and development, but as a comfortable refuge from the uncertainties of the outside world. He or she is willing to settle for static monogamy, an arrangement in which both partners have clearly defined and unchanging roles, and in which marriage is primarily an economic and domestic institution. This traditional arrangement sometimes works well enough, but in today's world, two partners are rarely willing to live indefinitely on an unchanging plateau. When your tennis partner starts improving his or her game and you don't, the game eventually breaks up. The same thing applies to relationships. So you can see the, the, the parallels that, that play out here. And one of Leonard's sort of ideas that he keeps coming back to throughout the book and the, the one that I find interesting and that I really needed kind of reminding of these past couple of weeks is, is the idea that mastery is a, is a process. It's not a destination. It is, it's a lifelong pursuit. It's the process of putting on your gear and going to practice and showing up and putting in the work, not because you expect to get some transactional result out of it, but because the path is more satisfying than sitting on the couch. But at the same time, you will spend most of your time on plateaus. You'll spend most of your time showing up and putting in the work. You know, once you get past the sort of beginner gains period, the the, the low-hanging fruit, the the path of mastery, walking the path, requires showing up and putting in the time and not necessarily feeling a high of accomplishment all the time, but that it's like that for everybody. And there is no other path except to do nothing. So, you know, he talks about his experience, how a lot of times he'd be really motivated. His his time going to the dojo and practicing would be kind of a highlight of his, his day or his week. But back to the book, it wasn't always like that. Sometimes when the moment came to go to class, I would be feeling particularly lazy. On those occasions, I would be tempted to do almost anything rather than face myself once again on the mat. And sometimes I would give in to that inevitable human resistance against doing what's best for us and waste an evening distracting myself. I knew quite well, however, that when I did overcome my lethargy, I would be rewarded with a little miracle. I knew that, no matter how I felt on climbing the dojo stairs, two hours later, after hundreds of throws and falls, I would walk out tingling and fully alive, feeling so good, in fact, that the night itself would seem to sparkle and gleam. This joy, I repeat, had little to do with progress or the achievement of goals. I was taken totally by surprise, in fact, when one of my teachers called a fellow student and me into his office after a weekend of marathon training and handed us brown belts, the rank next to black belt. One night, about a year later, the four most advanced brown belts in the school happened to have a conversation during which we obliquely talked upon the possibility that we ourselves might someday achieve the rank of black belt. The idea was both exciting and troubling, and when I next came to class I was aware of something new. The worm of ambition was eating stealthily away at the center of my belly. Maybe it was a coincidence, but within three weeks of that conversation, all four of us suffered serious injuries. A broken toe, torn ligaments in the elbow, a dislocated shoulder, and an arm broken in three places. These injuries were effective teachers. After recovering, we settled back into the steady, goalless practice. Another year and a half was to pass before the four of us made black belt. This isn't to say that we didn't practice hard. The hacker gets on a plateau and doesn't keep working. As I think back on that period, I realize that in spite of our many flaws, we were definitely on the path of mastery. Unlike the hacker, we were working hard, doing the best we could to improve our skills. But we had learned the perils of getting ahead of ourselves, and now we're willing to stay on the plateau for as long as was necessary. Ambition still was there, but it was tamed. Once again, we enjoyed our training. We loved the plateau. 
and we made progress. So, you know, maybe this isn't the book to give your 18-year-old kid if you're trying to turn him into the next, you know, whatever sports superstar. But it's it's a book that for someone like me, just trying to keep motivated and, and keep putting in the time and, and keep on the journey, um, it's it's good. It's a it's a good reminder. Uh, just about all this stuff and that, you know, we're not alone and, and there are other people out there doing this stuff and putting in the time and slowly seeing progress. And this is this is normal. This is not the exception. You're not slow. You're not stupid. Um, this is just the way mastery works. And, you know, like I said, it's a it's a short book. It it keeps moving. There's um after the first couple chapters, he starts breaking things down. He has a, a series of chapters about sort of the five keys of mastery. So like the first one, he talks about instructors, how to find a good instructor. One, one point that he made about instruction that I always sort of try and remember myself is that, you know, he talks about the importance and, and I'd imagine this is, this is more prevalent in, in dojo culture, but he, he talks about the importance of not becoming too attached to any, any one instructor. But teachers, as well as students, can be lazy, excessively goal-oriented, indifferent, psychologically seductive, or just plain inept. It's important to keep the proper psychological distance. If you're too far removed, there's no chance for the surrender that's part of the master's journey. If you come too close, you lose all perspective and become a disciple rather than a student. The responsibility for good balance lies with the student as well as a teacher. So, obviously some practical wisdom there. One thing I found interesting rereading this book is that it actually reminded me of the book that I talked about in episode 11, Peak, where they say something very similar to this. Um, So George Leonard says, The people that we know as masters don't devote themselves to their particular skill just to get better at it. The truth is, they love to practice, and because of this, they do get better. And then, to complete the circle, the better they get, the more they enjoy performing the basic moves over and over again. Beginners at the basic classes at our Aikido school will do a simple blending move about 8 or 10 times, then start looking around restlessly for something new to distract them. Black belts at the basics classes have the knowledge and experience, the feel, necessary to appreciate the subtleties and endless possibilities contained within even the most rudimentary technique. I remember an Aikido class years ago when I was a brown belt, the rank just below black belt. Our teacher started us doing a technique called a Shino Nage, then continued with the same variation of the same technique for the entire two-hour class. After the first half hour, I began wondering what was coming next. Our school rarely practiced the same technique for so long a time. By the end of the first hour, however, I had settled into a steady, trance-like rhythm that obliterated all considerations of time or repetition. My perceptions expanded. The barely noticeable variations from one throw to the next became significant and revealing. By the end of the second hour, I was hoping that the class would go on until midnight, that it would never end. To practice regularly, even when you seem to be getting nowhere, might at first seem onerous, but the day eventually comes when practicing becomes a treasured part of your life. You settled into it as if into your favorite easy chair, unaware of time and the turbulence of the world. It will still be there for you, waiting, tomorrow. It will never go away. How long will it take me to master Aikido, a prospective student asks. How long do you expect to live, is the only respectable response. Ultimately, practice is the path of mastery. If you stay on it long enough, you will find it to be a vivid place, with its ups and downs, its challenges and comforts, its surprises, disappointments, and unconditional joys. You'll take your share of bumps and bruises while traveling, bruises of the ego as well as of the body, mind, and spirit, but it might well turn out to be the most reliable thing in your life. Then too, it might eventually make you a winner in your chosen field, if that's what you're looking for, 
and then people will refer to you as a master. But that's not really the point. What is mastery? At the heart of it, mastery is practice. Mastery is staying on the path. Once he sort of paints the picture, he starts to talk about some of the more practical things that happen on the on the path to mastery, not just why you should stay on the path, but but how to stay on the path and things that can that can disrupt that. And so, for example, he has an entire chapter on on homeostasis, which is a, a biology term for sort of the body self-regulating and, and maintaining equilibrium. But he talks about the simplest example of homeostasis can be found in your home heating system. The thermostat on the wall senses the room's temperature. When the temperature on a winter's day drops below the level you've set, the thermostat sends an electrical signal that turns the heater on. The heater completes the loop by sending heat to the room in which the thermostat is located. When the room temperature reaches the level you've set, the thermostat sends an electrical signal back to the heater, turning it off, thus maintaining homeostasis. Keeping a room at the right temperature only takes one feedback loop. Keeping even the simplest single-celled organism alive and well takes thousands. And maintaining a human being in a state of homeostasis takes billions of interweaving electrochemical signals pulsing in the brain, rushing along nerve fibers, coursing through the bloodstream. Homeostasis in social groups brings additional feedback loops into play. Families stay stable by means of instruction, exhortation, punishment, privileges, gifts, favors, signs of approval and affection, and even by means of extremely subtle body language and facial expressions. Social groups larger than the family add various types of feedback systems. A national culture, for example, is held together by the legislative process, law enforcement, education, the popular arts, sports and games, economic rewards that favor certain types of activity, and by a complex web of mores, prestige markers, celebrity role modeling, and style that relies largely on the media as a national nervous system. Although we might think that our culture is mad for the new, the predominant function of all this, as with the feedback loops in your body, is the survival of things as they are. The problem is, homeostasis works to keep things as they are, even if they aren't very good. And then he goes through and lists five strategies for helping to deal with this. Things like, be aware of the way homeostasis works. Be willing to negotiate with your resistance to change. Develop a support system. Follow a regular practice. Dedicate yourself to lifelong learning. And each one of these comes with a, you know, one-page sort of short description that, that is brief but to the point and sort of packed with, with uh, wisdom, hard-earned wisdom, I would say. For example, the item about be willing to negotiate with your resistance to change. So what should you do when you run into resistance, when the red lights flash and the alarm bells ring? Well, you don't back off and you don't bull your way through. Negotiation is the ticket to long-term successful change in everything from increasing your running speed to transforming your organization. The long-distance runner working for a faster time on a measured course negotiates with homeostasis by using pain not as an adversary but as the best possible guide to performance. The change-oriented manager keeps his or her eyes and ears open for signs of dissatisfaction or dislocation, then plays the edge of discontent, the inevitable escort of transformation. The fine art of playing the edge in this case involves a willingness to take one step back for every two forward, sometimes vice versa. It also demands a determination to keep pushing, but not without awareness. Simply turning off your awareness to the warnings deprives you of guidance and risks damaging the system. Simply pushing your way through despite the warning signals increases the possibility of backsliding. You can never be sure exactly where the resistance will pop up. A feeling of anxiety, psychosomatic complaints, a tendency toward self-sabotage, squabbling with family, friends, or fellow workers, none of the above? Stay alert. Be prepared for serious negotiations. In the next chapter, he runs through 
what he calls the, the pitfalls along the path, which again, it's a, you know, a list of different items, each one of which with a little explanation, but things like conflicting way of life, obsessive goal orientation, poor instruction, lack of competitiveness, over-competitiveness, laziness, injuries, drugs, prizes and medals, vanity, dead seriousness, inconsistency, and perfectionism. <laughs> I mean, come on, if, if you, at least one of those doesn't describe you, that's, um, then, then you're not human. I mean, between those, that all, that, that covers pretty much everybody in the sport, in any sport, I think. Now, dead seriousness. Without laughter, the rough and rocky places on the path might be too painful to bear. Humor not only lightens your load, but it also broadens your perspective. To be deadly serious is to suffer tunnel vision. To be able to laugh at yourself clears the vision. When choosing fellow voyagers, beware of grimness, self-importance, and the solemn eye. I mean, that's that's one sentence right there that could save you a lot of struggle if you end up, you know, trying to pick the wrong person as your as your training partner. And the, I mean, the book is just full of little things like that, little offhand one-line comments that just make you stop and go, hmm. Certainly my experience with the book is that it's it's not something that you sort of read back to front, but it's something that you pick up and read until it shakes something loose in your head or, or gives you an idea or gives you something to think about. And then you chew on that for a day or two or, you know, a week or two or a month or two or a year or two and you put the book down and then the next time you pick it back up, you keep reading until you get to something else that that's like that. And you think, hmm, you know, when when in my life would that apply or when when have I ever... Uh, been in that situation. And, and it all, I mean, it's, it's funny. So the book was written 28 years ago, but it, even the societal trends that he talks about still feel like they're just as, as present as ever. So it's, it's certainly, if it has a very timeless feel to it. And I'll just close with the, the last couple paragraphs of the book, which, I mean, it's not exactly a spoiler, but if you, when you get there, when you read your way all the way to the end of the book, I'm sure it'll hit you a little bit differently, but it's always something that, that I've thought of. And if you've ever heard me on the podcast or, or in conversation talk about wearing the white belt, this is actually where I kind of got that from, where the, the, the thing that planted that seed in my head. But he says, referring to a, an example that he just finished talking about, if this scenario should seem extreme, consider for a moment the learnings in life you forfeited because your parents, your peers, your school, your society have not allowed you to be playful, free, and foolish in the learning process. How many times have you failed to try something new out of fear of being thought silly? How often have you censored your spontaneity out of fear of being thought childish? Too bad. Psychologist Abraham Maslow discovered a childlike quality he called a second naivety in people who have met an unusually high degree of their potential. Ashley Montague used the term neoteny from neonate, meaning newborn, to describe geniuses such as Mozart and Einstein. What we frown at as foolish in our friends or ourselves, we're likely to smile at as merely eccentric in a world-renowned genius, never stopping to think that the freedom to be foolish might well be one of the keys to the genius's success, or even to something as basic as learning to talk. I'll actually pause here because I wasn't planning to talk about this, but as I was reading through this paragraph, and again, this is how this book goes, I was just remembering just this past week I was watching the Joe Rogan interview with Alex Honnold, who's the guy who just had the movie come out about his free solo climb of El Capitan. And one of the things that was just remarkable about that interview is how quickly and, and just honestly, Alex was willing to be like, I don't know what that is. What is that? 
Like he, he wasn't too proud. He he was he he was naive in some ways, but he can't know everything. But he's a guy who's at the top of his sport, an incredibly, you know, dangerous sport that that is not for the weak of heart. And even he at a at, at the slightest provocation would say, What's that? Explain that to me. Because he wasn't afraid to be seen as as foolish because he wanted to learn. And maybe maybe that's why he's still alive. But yeah, it's just interesting how every time you read the book, it'll sort of link back to, to something you've you've just read or just seen or just been through. But anyway, the the actual ending of the book. When Jigoro Kano, the founder of Judo, was quite old and close to death, the story goes, he called his students around him and told them he wanted to be buried in his white belt. What a touching story. How humble of the world's highest-ranking judoist in his last days to ask for the emblem of the beginner. But Kano's request, I eventually realized, was less humility than realism. At the moment of death, the ultimate transformation, we are all white belts. And if death makes beginners of us, so does life, again and again. In the master's secret mirror, even at the moment of his highest renown and accomplishment, there is an image of the newest student in class, eager for knowledge, willing to play the fool. And for all who walk the path of mastery, however far that journey has progressed, Kano's request becomes a lingering question, an ever-new challenge. Are you willing to wear your white belt? Well, that wraps up this episode of Short Course. If you'd like to see a list of books I recommend, it's on my website at barryshooting.com books. If you want to support the podcast, consider buying a shirt at barryshooting.com shop. My email is podcast at barryshooting.com. Talk to you next time.